Well, hello, CMYK community. Welcome. This is the CMYK Talk Podcast. My name is Matt, and we, ladies and gentlemen, are wrapping up a series of talks that we've been in for a couple months now, Roots, Branches, and Fruit, talking about this thing known as Christianity and how or why it grew into what it is today, all of its weird intricacies. And today, man, uh, I'm excited where we're headed. So before we jump into it, though, I need to take care of a little bit of family business, if you don't mind, uh, and just get everybody on the same page. Um, As you probably know, we have gatherings that take place in Billings, Montana on Sundays uh, that uh, take place in the morning and the evening at 10.30 a.m. And then at 6 p.m., we gather at Art House Cinema and Pub. We rent that place out and just have a good time there. We got some music and art, and we have some time connecting. And then this talk that you hear on the Talks podcast every week is the talk that I give live there. Well, in our morning gatherings, <clears throat> we have kid care available. So if you've got kids, you bring them uh, to CMYK, and we are continually working uh, to structure and figure out better and better ways uh, to just engage and interact with our kids and have the same kind of goals that we have for us as adults as the CMYK community, a holistic, joy-filled life, being present, honest, open, and love, that we're kind of working with that with our kids at the same time creating fun, creative, and safe environments for them as well. And over the last year plus, season of time, we've had this incredible uh, woman known as Clementine Lindley, who's been leading our kids' uh, work. Just phenomenal stuff that she's been able to do and implement and bring so much of her artistry and personality into uh, creating spaces for our kids. Anyways, uh, a few months ago now, a couple months ago, Clementine just started talking about where she was at personally with some things and just feeling like her season and her time of leading that kid's department of CMYK was starting to come to a close. She wasn't throwing in the towel. She was just trying to be present and honest <laughs> about where she was and, and and kind of what she felt was best for her and maybe best for CMYK as well. So uh, that was a, a sad thing for us to kind of start talking about. But at the same time, we started thinking about, okay, so what's next? And I just want to make sure that everybody's on the same page. One, we love Clementine and and their family, uh, Clementine and Andrew, are part of the leadership team. They're going to continue to be a part of the leadership team. They're fully invested in a part of this thing and so grateful to them, to them for that. But Clementine is stepping away from the kids' piece. And what we did is I decided to say, okay, if there's kind of somebody in our community that would kind of fill those shoes and be able to take us to that next level with what we're doing with kids, who would that be? And that person at the top of my list, and if you know her, she would probably be at the top of your list as well, is Jenny Barkak. Jenny is just not only an incredible person, uh, but has multiple degrees in childhood development and and teaching and understanding kids and how to best approach and understand and and just help kids understand the world and help us as parents understand kids. She's phenomenal. So kind of took a shot in the dark and said, hey, Jenny, what do you think? And she said, yes. So Jenny Barkak is officially, as of today, stepping into that kid's leader position role. Again, I know some of you just listen to the podcasts and you rarely make it to a Sunday gathering. Totally fine. But I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page. We're applauding Clementine. Thank you so much. And at the same time, we're welcoming Jenny. And so if you got kids or you know somebody that's got kids, I I am so excited about the direction uh, and energy that is behind our current kids stuff that's happening with our CMYK Sunday gatherings. 
good, 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 good stuff. And then me personally as a parent to just have Jenny uh, around more as I have questions. I have a three-year-old as I have questions uh, to be able to continue to uh, see that dialogue and connection conversation take place. So that's what's happening on the CMYK Kids front. Also, I want to make sure that you know, if you're listening to this in the calendar week that we release this podcast, April 1st, this coming Sunday is Easter, Resurrection Sunday. And I've been talking about it for the last couple of weeks, but cannot continue to encourage you enough to please join us for one of those Easter gatherings. It's so special, so important, and it really is um, one of our favorite gatherings of the entire year. So we've got some original music that's going to be shared. We've got people that are sharing their stories of wrestling with this idea and concept of death, burial, and resurrection the story of Christ, and is that something that impacts our lives here and now today? And what are the stories of our own death, burial, and is there resurrection? What does this look like? So we're wrestling with it, we're celebrating with it, uh, we're being honest with some things. It's so beautiful. I hope you can make it. So our gathering schedule is a little different for Easter. As you may know, we're doing two morning gatherings that Sunday, so no evening gathering, two in the morning, one at 9.30 and one at 11, and you are more than welcome uh, to join us and be a part of that. We would be so honored and excited to see you there and connect with you. It's going to be a really, really special gathering. So hope to see you there Easter Sunday, April 1st. Okay, so today we're wrapping up this series, Roots, Branches, and Fruit, which, by the way, one of our leaders approached me a couple weeks ago and said, hey, you know what you should have called this is Roots, Shoots, and Fruits. (laughs) That's way better than roots, branches, and fruits. Uh, Roots, shoots, and fruits. Oh, man, I really dropped the ball on that one. I'm sorry. I feel like we need to go all the way back to the beginning and start over uh, just to get that series title in the mix. Uh, So we've been in this series for the last couple months, and for me personally, as I've mentioned a few times, this is one of the most important and uh, really like life-changing kind of series of talks and ideas for me. And and I know that might sound silly because I'm the guy giving the talks. So I'm really not trying to say that Matt, when Matt Blakesley talks, Matt Blakesley life, Matt Blakesley's life has changed. I understand uh, the narcissistic nature of, of that statement. What, what I'm trying to communicate is these concepts and ideas of looking at where the church started and its roots and what it's grown into with these branches has been so helpful for me personally to understand and look at, oh, this is why we are where we are. This is why I'm so frustrated by this, and does this need to be a part of it? Is this good fruit or is this bad fruit? And to be able in, in this day and age understand, okay, it's 2018, where do we go from here and what do I do with this? And I think it's important to remember, we talked about it a few weeks ago, but one of the things that we've kind of highlighted as major branches within the history of this thing known as the church and Christianity is that the roots are planted in the early CE, common era period of time. And so it's in like 30 CE that we see Christ ascend, he's gone, and as the story goes, the church is formed. And that goes on for a few hundred years. There's ups and downs, there's left and rights, until this major shift that takes place in 550 to 600 CE. This pope named Gregory the Great shows up, and he's in charge of the church, and he leads the church and Christianity out of Rome being in power into this place where now the church is in power. The church all of a sudden is connected to power. And that has huge ramifications, huge implications for us here and now today, that the church is winning when the church is connected to power. And to wrestle with and understand, okay, is that 
good. And then what we see is that kind of grows and continues to move for 500 years. And then around 1054 CE, there's this thing known as the Great Schism. Again, talked about it a couple weeks ago. It's this moment when these two different factions, East and West within the church, can no longer be together. And so they have to go through this process of trying to convert one another or just shunning and creating their own world because they cannot deal with somebody that thinks and believes, acts differently than them. So it's this great schism. It's the church fracturing. And as you can understand, that has huge implications for us here and now in this moment. What do we do when we encounter someone who believes or thinks, acts differently than us? Is it not this same kind of moment that we see with the great schism, that we try to convert them to our way of thinking, or we just cut off ties and create our own separate worlds? And then, as Seth talked about last week, there's this moment in 1517 CE known as the Great Reformation. Guy Martin Luther starts this thing known as the Reformation, becomes the Lutheran Church, and it's all founded upon where we find our authority. We find our authority in Scripture, and we find our authority within the priesthood of believers, the church. And so all of a sudden, authority is pulled from one man, the Pope, and we've got communities of people that are reading scriptures and texts and creating this authority for how they view and see things. And so we ask ourselves this question, where does authority come from? And how do we navigate a world where everybody is their own authority? Navigate a world where there's 15 different ways to interpret one text in the Bible that seems really clear and pointed, but at the same time, there's all these nuanced ideas and concepts that can be brought to it that we don't even know, okay, so what's the authority here and how do we navigate that? This is the picture that we've created. This, these are the branches or the shoots, <laughs> if you will. And what we talked about a few weeks ago is that what we see is these major shifts within the church, Gregory the Great, Great Schism, and the Great Reformation, they happen every 500 years. It's a 500-year cycle that's found within Christianity, that there are these giant shifts, changes, fractures, movements come that then shift and shape the next 500 years of this thing. This is something that's found outside of Christianity. It's actually found in Judaism as well. When you look back at the Old Testament, there's some major shifts that happen every 500 years. There's actually been study to find that it happens in Islam as well. There's something about our humanity that every 500 years, it seems like we're having some major shifts and changes, and things are developing and progressing in new ways. The philosopher Carl Jaspers in 1948 defined this idea of a 500-year cycle as the axial age. And here's what you all know and have all felt. We are in the year 2018. The last major shift came with the Great Reformation in 1517. We are 500 years removed from the last major shift which means we potentially, if this axial age thing is something that's actually a thing, we are in the midst of that shift and change. 
So it raises this question. For me, it should raise the question for you because we're all feeling this tension of is this thing called Christianity in the church? Are these teachings of Christ, are they significant? Are they important? Is it just ancient, archaic? Is there something that that will move Christianity into the next 500 years or is this just the dead end and we need to abandon ship? It's this question of what's next, what's ahead, because we're right in the midst of this shift. And one of the things I've found is when you're trying to determine the future, when you're trying to figure out what's next, you've got to start with what you know right now in this moment. And here's what I know. After the success of the Game Boy gaming system by Nintendo, and after the success of the Super Nintendo gaming system by Nintendo, this company, Nintendo, in the early 90s, was poised to come out with the next big thing. They had just had huge success with the NES. Then they come out with the Game Boy. Then they come out with the SNES. And everybody loves them. I was one of those kids and probably still am, if I'm honest. And maybe you were as well. So Nintendo's in this place of asking, what's next? What's the next big thing for video games? Because they want to continue this forward momentum that they've seen as a company. So they begin to invest millions and millions and millions of dollars into this thing known as virtual reality. They acquire rights to a company that allows them to start this work on this gaming console that they believe is going to shift and change all of the portable gaming and all of home gaming, if they get it right, this is the next big thing. It's coming. It's happening. And so in 1995, they released this thing known as the Virtual Boy. And it's hailed as everything that they had invested in, the next big thing. But if you know anything about the Virtual Boy, which is probably very little, and here's why, it flopped. It was a huge disappointment. It's known as one of the biggest flops in all of gaming history. To spend millions and millions of dollars on investment and trying to make this thing successful, but at the end of the day, nobody was buying it, and they could not get it cheap enough that people would actually pick it up, and it was not flying off the shelves on any level. It was not the next big big thing. It was uncomfortable for people to wear for periods of time. It looked didn't look really great graphically. So like you have this thing called the Super Nintendo, it's moving graphics forward. And then this thing known as the Virtual Boy, it just wasn't pleasant to look at. And on top of that, it actually caused headaches, physical pain and discomfort from playing video games. All that to say, it was not the next big thing. Even though you have a company like Nintendo that is ruling the world in the gaming industry, and they invest millions of dollars and years of, of research, and they come out with a flying turd. It goes nowhere. It's an interesting thing to think that we as human beings sit in the present, and we have this desire to figure out what's next. We want to be on the cutting edge of what's ahead. And so there are moments, yes, where people are able to point out and say, this is going to be the next big thing, and it actually is. But then there are moments more often than the successful ones where you have people like Arthur Summerfield, who was the U.S. Postmaster General, the guy that's in charge of mail. And in 1959, he said this, this guy, as the authority on 
this issue in the U.S. in 1959. He said, before man reaches the moon, your mail will be delivered in hours from New York to Australia by guided missiles. We stand on the threshold of rocket mail. This is a true quote. Before man reaches the moon, your mail will be delivered by rocket. This guy, he's in authority, was wrong. You have this moment in 1955. Robert Metcalf, <clears throat> the founder of 3Com, which is a huge like technology networking c- company, he said this, I predict in 1995, he said, I predict the internet will soon go spectacularly supernova, and in 1996, it will cas- catastrophically collapse. Robert, be wrong. <laughs> in 2005, Steve Chen, who is the co-founder of YouTube, said this, There's just not that many videos I want to watch. And so he believed that even YouTube was not going to be a success. And then in 2007, a guy named Steve Ballmer, who was the CEO of Microsoft, said these now famous words. There's no chance that the iPhone is going to get any significant market share. In other words, the iPhone's going to be a flop. Now here's why I would bring that up. Because what I know is that all of these guys were deemed as experts in their categories. Nintendo was an expert, is an expert in gaming. If you don't have a Switch, what are you doing? Get a Nintendo Switch. But they're an expert in gaming. You've got the Postmaster General. You have people that started giant networking firms and are CEOs of Microsoft and YouTube, these kinds of things. And they got it wrong. They believed they knew that they knew that they knew what was next. And the reality is they had no clue. So as we wrestle with and think about what's next for church and Christianity, the tendency is for us to look to an expert, to look for a book or a blog or a pastor, a church, somebody or something that we think is on the cutting edge and what they're saying is what's next, and that we lean into that. But what I believe is that we don't know. (laughs) We can't look to just some expert and discover and find what's next. What I believe is if we're going to talk about what this next 500 years of church and Christianity is to look like, it's found not in someone else, but it's found in you. The you are the one that determines and figures out what's next. I am the one that determines and figures out what's next for church. And the reason I say this is threefold. First, what I see is that the church started out as these communities of people that would gather together. And what we find is that the word that they use to describe themselves is this word ekklesia, and ecclesia is this Greek word that is defined as a gathering for a specific purpose. So when these followers of Christ started to get together and call themselves church, the word that they used was not church. The word that they used to describe themselves and the word that was used by everyone around them was this word ecclesia, because it was found in these communities and groups of people. But something happened. About 10 years into this, what we find is that the Romans started to use another word to describe what was taking place. Rather than talking about them as ecclesia, they started using this word basilica, which is another Greek word 
But instead of a community or group of people, basilica means a public building or official meeting place. So all of a sudden, rather than being identified as people, it was identified, these, these groups of people were identified by the building and the space that they were meeting in. It was found as a structure, not people. Well, you fast forward a little bit, and when the Germans started translating the text, the scriptures, into the German language, rather than taking this word ecclesia, communities and groups of people, they used this word basilica, and they used this German word kierica, which is that is not a good pronunciation, but it's spelled K-I-R-C-H-E, and it has its roots in this English word that we translated into church. And this German word is the same thing. It deals with a building, a space. And so when we talk about or when we think about church, our most natural instinct is to take this honestly bad translation of this word ecclesia and turn it into a building, a structure, a system, a program. And that's what the church is. And so our tendency when we think about what's next for the church is to look at that building, structure, that system, program, whatever it is, and to try and figure out, okay, what's different about that? Are we adding lights and fog? Are we adding platforms and stages? Are we not doing that and we're going backwards and you know doing something completely different? But we want to look at the structure for what church is going to be like. But that's not what church is. Church is found in communities and groups of people. It's found in you and me. So in other words, why do I think that what's next is up to you? Is because it's about you. It's about people. That's what church is. Secondly, I find it really interesting and important to note, there's this moment that's talked about in multiple gospels where Jesus is having this conversation with his followers. It's recorded in Mark where he and his disciples are walking from one place to another, and Jesus has a question for them. And I find this incredibly fascinating. It says in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, that Jesus went on with his disciples to the village of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? So what's, what's this all about? What am I up to? Jesus asks. And they told him, they said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others still, one of the prophets. So his followers have these, these ideas, these thoughts, these things that they can attach to Jesus. And it's what other people are saying about who he is. They're just reciting what they've heard about what this thing is. But Jesus is not content there. I find it so important that Jesus doesn't just go, oh, that's fascinating and interesting. Thanks for reciting what other people have said about me and what all of this stuff is. Jesus goes on and he looks his disciples in the eye and it says, he asked them, but who do you say that I am? There's something so important here that Jesus is not interested in what other people are saying about this stuff. Jesus is interested in what his followers, what you and I are saying about this stuff. That's what matters, and that's what's significant. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that Christ is? So not only is this about people, but what we see through Jesus in his interaction with his followers is that it's about your own personal engagement with this stuff. This is why I believe that we are the ones that define what's next. But on top of all of that, 
if we zoom out from all of Scripture and we look at the whole context, Old Testament, New Testament, all these words, all these stories and ideas that are presented in the Bible, there is a continual thread that anybody will have to see. And that is, it is groups of people and individuals that are continually finding themselves throughout these historic stories wrestling with the divine, asking questions of themselves and of the divine. We find these threads of questions where humanity is asking, is there more to be found here? Or is life just made up by dirt, soil, blood, and sweat, tears? This is all that there is, the physical reality that we see around us, and that's all there is. Or is there something more? Is there something divine and mysterious that's a part of this life and a part of this universe? They're asking questions like, what are we to do with this life? Is there a better, more beautiful way for us to live? Is there a better, more beautiful way for us to engage and interact with each other, with creation? And if there is the divine, is there a better, more beautiful way for us to interact with the divine? These are questions that we continue to see humanity, these groups of people, wrestle with, tell stories about, and try to figure out. That's what the scriptures are. In fact, in the Old Testament, when they are finding a name for who these people of God are in Scripture, it's this word Israel that they use. They call themselves the nation or the people of Israel, which is an important thing because when you look at the definition of what this Hebrew word Israel came to mean and be, it was one who wrestles or contends with God. This is what the scriptures are continually about, an invitation to wrestle with these kinds of questions. What is this? Is there more to this life and more than just the physical reality that we see around us? Is there mystery and this divine presence here? Is there a more beautiful way to live and interact? And so for me, when we look at these things and these ideas, that this idea of church, it's about people. It's not a building or structure or system. It's not driven by someone at the top with their idea. No, it's about communities of people. On top of that, it's an invitation to personally engage and ask and wrestle with this question of who do I say this Christ is? And does this matter? Is it something to me? And that this is a continual wrestling match. The scriptures, the reason that I find it so fascinating and important that this is the whole crux of scriptures, that it's not something that happens at one moment in history, and then it's solved and figured out, and from that point on, nobody's wrestling anymore. Everybody's just good and fine. No, it's people continuing to wrestle, continuing to poke the box, continuing to ask these questions and progress and move forward in the midst of asking these questions, stepping into a more beautiful way to interact with the world, people, stuff, the divine around them. That's what we see. And so when we think about what's next for the church, it's found in you. It's found in me. Are we choosing to engage in this kind of work? That we are people wrestling with the divine on a personal level. So what's next for the church? I don't know. You tell me. Are you personally engaging with this wrestling match of what is the divine? Is there a more beautiful way to live? Are you finding yourself in communities and spaces where you're wrestling with that question together? Because to do that is to be a part of and to move the church 
forward. You see, it makes sense to me that when we look at church history, we find that there are these continual moments where we think the invitation is to just revolve around a building, a system, or a structure, and that's what church is. But it's not. It's ecclesia. And it makes sense to me that we would find our lives in the same place that the disciples potentially were, and that is just reciting what other people have said in the past. That, oh, this is what this theologian says, or this is what they, they said in the past. There are good thoughts out there, and they are, but they're not thoughts to end the wrestling match. They're thoughts to continually move ourselves forward and ask questions. And it makes sense to me that we would disengage from this wrestling match and just sit on the sidelines. Because wrestling, while fun for a moment, can get really awkward and uncomfortable after a period of time. I mean, have you ever watched a college or high school wrestling meet? It's, it can kind of be an uncomfortable thing. One, because, you know, everybody's wearing singlets, and that just doesn't look comfortable for anybody, <laughs> whether you're the onlooker or whether you're the one wearing the singlet. Just an uncomfortable experience. But on top of that, a wrestling match is driven to find a winner. And so, yeah, you can have this wrestling match, but after like 5, 10, especially 15, 20 minutes, it starts to get a little crazy. And there's this part of us that goes, we just need a winner here. I mean, even something like the WWE, which I know that there are fans of out there, this thing, we can watch a wrestling match like that, and we can get all excited about the tension and who's going to win. But after a while, we just need to know who wins. (laughs) We're sick and tired of watching the wrestling match, and we just want to crown the winner. Because there's something in our humanity that we just want to know who wins and crown the winner and be done and move on. But this is not the story of Scripture. The story of Scripture is not a group of people stumbling upon, oh, this is what this life is, and then it's just done, problem solved, move on. It's a continual invitation to always wrestle, to always be present honest, open, to wrestle to be the embodiment of love on planet earth, to wrestle to find the most beautiful, joy-filled, holistic way to live on planet earth. It's ongoing, and we don't like that. So it makes sense to me that the church throughout history has found these continual moments where we just want to claim the winner. This is the way to believe. This is the way to act. This is the way to think. And anything outside of that is wrong or lesser. Meanwhile, the scriptures have always been an invitation to continually wrestle, wrestle, wrestle. We are the people of God, the nation of Israel, one who wrestles and contends with the divine. And it's in this that we create church. It's in this that we create Christianity. So what's next in this next 500 years? Yeah, there's thoughts and ideas that are out there, and some of them might nail it on the head. But I don't think that matters as much as simply you and I asking ourselves the question, am I engaged in this wrestling match? Because this is about me as community personally wrestling with this question, who do I say this Christ is? is, and continuing to come back to this wrestling compared to just setting it down and being done. So are you wrestling?
Again, it's incredibly easy for you to live your life just reciting what other people have told you about the divine or about this life. And it's incredibly easy to just disengage, sit on the sidelines, and criticize systems and structures, to criticize how people are, others are just reciting what they've been told, and all the while you yourself are not engaging in this work of spirituality and the divine. So are you wrestling? And I would ask the question, how are you wrestling? Because I'm sure you have questions. I'm sure you have doubts. I'm sure you have things that you feel really solid about and are excited about. Yes, go for it. But what are the things, the practices, the people that you've placed around you to continue on in this wrestling match? And that doesn't have to be on a Sunday morning in a church building. That could be, yeah, (laughs) at an independent movie theater in Billings, Montana. But it also could be around a meal with some friends and family. It could be around a cup of coffee. But it's in that work that you and I define what church is and what's next. And that we continue to engage in that wrestling match. This, for me, is why I love this thing known as the CMYK community. Because for all of our faults, all of the weird, quirky intricacies that we have, or that I have as a person, as a part of this community, we are found wrestling. And there are some of us that know that we know that we know some things, and there are others of us that are in this place of absolute doubt, and we don't know if any of this has any merit or real truth to it. But what we do know is that the wrestling match is worth it. Because it's easy to just recite, and it's easy to just disengage and criticize. But to engage and to be a part of creating what's next, this is what matters. And again, maybe it's not CMYK. Maybe it's another community. Maybe it's just friends and family. Whatever it is, I really believe that this wrestling match matters and that I need to continually find myself in this place for my own personal joy and holistic life and for my family and for the friends around me continue to find myself in this wrestling match. As, as many of you know, <clears throat> I lost my brother to cancer a couple weeks ago. And I've gone through my own deconstruction in many ways of faith and wrestling with scriptures and the idea of God. And man, I've been up and down and all over the place on a lot of this stuff. And it's been a continual wrestling match. But if you would have talked to me about a year ago, I would have said that I've like fully engaged in this space known as reconstruction where you know, I'm not pulling it apart anymore. I'm, I'm kind of building some blocks again around, well, this is, this is what I believe and this is where I am on these things. But when Ben passed away a couple weeks ago and the weeks leading up to that, what I found is that even these um, small and not very many <laughs> reconstruction blocks that I had found of, well, this is what I think and this is what I believe, I found myself um, even wrestling 
and doubting that. And, and once again, left with like nothing. And, and really <clears throat> wanting to just kind of throw in the towel on a lot of this faith and belief stuff, just honestly, not knowing, man, what do I actually believe and think? I don't know, and I don't know that I can do this anymore. But here's what I know. <clears throat> when I look at these questions that we find people wrestling with throughout the text of, is there more here? Is there mystery? Is there a better way to live this life and engage with humanity and creation and the world around me? I think these are questions that still matter. <clears throat> and so it's been a challenge for me to, um, in this season and state, to not just throw in the towel, but to really hunker down and say, no, I, I believe that this wrestling match matters. To continue to contend with the divine, to continue to ask myself this question, who do I say this Christ is? And is there meaning, significance, and relevance for that for me and the world around me now? And to continue to find that in spaces, community. And it's in that I'm not finding all the answers. I'm not finding complete certainty that I know that I know that I know. But it's in that that I believe that there is life and life to the full that is found. That spirituality matters. And that I want to be somebody that's willing to wrestle. And it's in that work that I am a part of defining church. And it's in that work that you are defining church. So are you wrestling? And how are you wrestling? What are the tools, the spaces, the disciplines, the ways that you've structured your life to continue on in this wrestling match and not just find yourself setting this aside? Because that's what's going to matter for the next 500 years. I love you, and I hope that this series and talk has been, uh, these ideas have been as helpful to you as they have been to me. And man, I, I, I hope uh, that you would be able to make it to our Easter gathering this next uh, weekend, because it's, it's exactly everything we're talking about, a community of people wrestling with death, burial, resurrection, and the divine and trying to find life there. If there's anything we can do for you, please let us know, and we'll talk to you soon.